Good morning. Our call to worship is from Psalm 86. Will you stand with us and we'll sing it together. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord. There are no works like yours. There is none. Answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant. For to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O oh Lord. There are no works like yours. There is none like you among the gods, O oh Lord. There are no works like yours. Teach me your way, O oh Lord that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to, to, to fear your name. Um, I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol.
Heavenly Father, giver of life, we thank you for this day that you have made. We rejoice in your creation, but more than that, we rejoice in your presence and love. Dear Lord, as we enter here this morning, some of us have felt this presence acutely this week and have witnessed your grace in our lives. Please grant that we share this grace with the people you have put, us, you have put into our lives, in our workplaces and homes, in our daily going outs and coming in. Others of us enter here this morning feeling distant from your presence and your love, distracted by the pleasure of this world or by the suffering we experience in our lives and witness in the lives of those around us and in the world. We ask that through the ministry of your word and song, you help us feel your embrace and know your care for us. Still others of us come here this morning and are ambivalent Meet our questions in your gentleness and allow us to rest in your patience and grace. By the power of your word and spirit, chasten our minds, soften our hearts, and renew our spirits. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Children are dismissed for children's worship. We will now continue through a time of uh, confession. We'll do so first corporately through word and then through song, and then we'll have a time for silent personal confession. O Lord God, my, uh, O Lord God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full of troubles and my eyes grow dim through sorrow. I am a person without strength, cut off from your hand. Yet I call upon you, O Lord, my hope. Cause me to remember your steadfast love and faithfulness. Say to my soul, I am your salvation.
silent personal confession. Father, we thank you that you are faithful even when we are not. Faithful to forgive our sins, faithful to welcome us back from our wanderings, and faithful to restore us to you and reconcile us to those whom we have hurt and pushed away. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please stand for the words of assurance. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. As we have been welcomed um, by our God, let us welcome one another.
Old Testament lesson today is from Isaiah chapter 53 verses 3 through 6. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised 
and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. And of us like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. And the gospel lesson is from John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper and laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. And so he came to Simon Peter. He said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Peter said to him, Never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. And so when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Laura, for reading God's word for us this morning. Um, well, our text today, it, it, uh, it takes place in the Greek city of Corinth. The Apostle Paul, he, uh, he traveled there around the year 50 AD, and without question, uh, it was the largest, the most impressive city that Paul had yet encountered. Undoubtedly, uh, the city uh, overwhelmed him, right? Uh, Corinth was the original sin city. Whatever happened in Corinth stayed in Corinth. I mean, you could think of Paul's letter to the Corinthians as his first letter to Vegas, right? Um, and yet, despite its reputation, and to the apostles Paul's own surprise, large numbers of people in Corinth received his message. 
I mean, they became Christians. They put their faith in Jesus, and that is how the church in Corinth was born. And after Paul spent 18 months in this church in Corinth, he sailed across the Aegean Sea to, to Ephesus, and that is when the, the, the trouble started. While he was in Ephesus, Paul receives news that, uh, from Corinth that the church is now falling apart. People have split into factions. They're developing these cults of personali personality. They're abusing their spiritual gifts. They're doing whatever they want because they figure, well, we're, we're free in Christ. Who cares, right? We've got license to do anything we desire. And as a result of all of this, despite its strong beginning, the church had lost its way, forgot why it existed, and it was in danger of imploding. So the Apostle Paul, he, he dashes off a letter from Ephesus to Corinth, and this letter, um, which we now know as the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, uh, he writes this letter in order to help turn the church around. And the way that he does this is by reminding the Corinthians, first and foremost, who they are. He reminds them of who they are. Here, and here's what I love about this letter, right? This, this letter clearly shows us that if God can turn around, if God can turn around a failing church like this church in Corinth, then he can turn us around too. He does this turnaround not in the ways that we always expect, not in the, in the way that we might think that he would, but he does it out of his love, out of the abundance of his kindness and his grace. So here's the question that I want us to consider. What is um, God's strategy for stra straightening a wayward people? What is God's strategy for turning around a people who have lost their way? And the answer is perhaps not <laughs> what we might think it is. But here in this letter to the Corinthians, we see that God's strategy is to offer a weak message <laughs> that is delivered through a weak person to a weak audience. I mean, you might think to yourself, well, I mean, that doesn't sound great. <laughs> sound very promising. Um, but I think for us just to wait and to hear and to see what happens. So let's turn together to 1 Corinthians 1. Verses 18, and we'll take this through chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the, the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, the stumbling block to Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than humans, and the weakness of God is stronger than humans. 
For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let, let the one who boast, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of humans, but in the power of God. Well, this is God's word. It's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you will just open us up to hear your words of life, to receive them, and be changed by them. We ask this in, in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, it's hard to imagine uh, what it must have first been like for Paul to travel to this Greek city of Corinth and then to start telling people about Jesus, right? We, we see early on in our text that ancient Jews were looking for something. Uh, they were looking or, or someone powerful. I mean, they're longing for a Messiah, but they were hoping probably for a political Messiah, someone who would drive the Romans out of Palestine and make Israel a, a great nation again. And if Jews were looking for power, people from a Greek background were looking for wisdom. Right? They were longing for wisdom to answer life's questions, and, and wisdom for them meant smart and educated philosophical arguments. But here's Paul strolling into the city of Corinth. He starts telling them about a God who became a human being in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. But the same man, he went off and he got himself killed by the Romans. Think about that. That doesn't sound powerful or wise. I mean, it sounds rather pathetic or foolish. Yet that's the message that Paul proclaims. That's the message that the Corinthian Christians first received, right? And that's how they put their faith in Jesus. That is how the church in Corinth was born. And now that same church is in real danger of going off the rails. And so Paul, he seeks to, to recenter the church on Jesus, and he does so by reminding them that when he came to them in the first place, he not try to dazzle them with rhetoric, but instead he says in chapter two, verse two, I decided to know nothing. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We may be so familiar <laughs> with the Christian message that the message of the cross, right, this 
Christ crucified that we may fail to realize how shocking or even how offensive of a message this could have been in the ancient world. Right, crucifixions happened all the time, right? People were familiar with them, but they never talked about them because a, a crucifixion was considered to be so disgusting or so degrading that, that you would never talk about a crucifixion in polite company. It would be like talking about the intimate details of torture at an elegant dinner party. This is not something that you would do. And and yet, Paul, he says that this was the focal point of his message. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He talked about how the Romans took Jesus and they beat him to a pulp and they hung him up on a tree. And, And imagine what it must have been like for those first listeners, right? Imagine how shocked they must have been. Imagine the questions that must have swirled through their minds. Are you honestly telling us, Paul, that you're basing your whole entire life upon a man who was executed like a common criminal in disgrace and shame, treated like less than a dog, killed on top of a garbage heap at the wrong end of the empire? basing your whole life on that, and you expect us to believe that this man, this person is actually God, and you want us to worship him? Are you out of your ever-living mind, Paul? (laughs) And perhaps to capture the feelings of people around this message, one one of the first depictions of the early Christian movement that we have in in art is actually a form of graffiti scribbled on a wall. And I put it in this, I put this image in your order. Uh, You can see it. It's on the page after our text. And in this image, we see a man with the head of a donkey hanging on a cross. It's a mocking caption. I mean, the mocking caption underneath the image, it reads, uh, Aleximenos worships his God. The thought that God would die on a cross like a slave is just completely insane. Yet Paul says this was his message. It would have sounded not powerful and wise, but incredibly pathetic and foolish. And yet this weak, foolish message For people who have ears to hear, underneath all of the absurdity is something resonant and deeply compelling. I mean, one of the things that this message holds for people like us, for all people, is that you don't have to come to God with anything in your hands. You don't have to get your act together to come to God. You don't have to look squared away to come to God. You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to get sobered up. You don't have to to be successful at your job or make a certain amount of money to come to God. You can come to him and however, you can come to him however you are with the open hands of repentance and faith and he will meet you right there with his grace. That is how he always comes. And not only was Paul's message weak, but he tells us that it was delivered by a weak speaker. Be the, <laughs> it'd be one thing if this message was kind of embarrassing, but, but Paul made up for it by wowing the crowds with his soaring presentation, his 
sophistication and polish, right, of his words. But, but by his own admission, Paul tells us that he had gained a reputation for being a rather terrible public speaker. He was a terrible speaker. <laughs> he tells us in this very passage that when he entered this intimidating city of Corinth, he, he came in weakness and in fear with much trembling. And we all know, I mean, it's awkward to listen uh, to someone speaking publicly when they're not very good at it, right? I mean, we may feel a little embarrassed for them. We might root for them, but it's, it's uncomfortable. And Paul tells us that when he told the Corinthians about Jesus and his cross, he was just a bundle of nerves, right? He was shaky. It doesn't exactly inspire a lot of confidence, that's not the kind of self-assured leaders that we, we typically look for today, right? We, we know that Paul possessed a massive intellect, but he also suffered from all kinds of physical problems and was often subjected to strong feelings of near despair and despondency because of the many trials that he had faced in his life. And we also know, according even to second century tradition, that, that Paul was small and ugly and unattractive with a with a bald head and bowed legs and apparently Paul was not much right he, he just was not much to look at or to listen to and later right later on the Corinthians will complain about Paul if you turn to second Corinthians chapter 10 they say of Paul well he can write a strong letter but his physical appearance is nothing to look at I mean it's weak and unimpressive they say, they say of him that his speech is content, con, sorry, contemptible. And that's a strong word, right? Your public speaking ability is contemptible. That doesn't just mean bad. That means let's, let's heckle him bad. Let's drag him off the stage. Let's drag him off the stage with, with our booze bad. I mean, that's how bad he was, but it, it doesn't matter. Right? While his physical presence was weak and unimpressive and his speech was contemptible, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1, that he came not proclaiming the testimony of God with lofty speech or with clever words. In other words, it wasn't a, a performance. He wasn't trying to tickle the ears of listeners. <laughs> Instead, he made a deliberate choice to speak in plain and unaffected way in order to let the words of his message speak for themselves. Paul's a weak speaker who delivers a weak message. But then he tells us that he was received by a weak audience. He begins the section in verse 26 by addressing the Christians in Corinth as brothers or as brothers and sisters or Maybe even a better translation might be, my, my dear Christian family. And then he says, consider your calling. Consider your calling, which for Paul is another way of speaking uh, about conversion, right? Speak about when God first called you into relationship with himself. He said that not, not many of you were intellectuals and not many of you held positions of influence. Not many of you were people of high status, and yet God called you. God called you, uh, of all people, into his royal family. He, he made you his sons and daughters. And friends, Paul wants us to hear 
He wants us to take in that, that God reverses all of our expectations about what and who he values. God chooses nobodies and he makes them somebodies in order to bring to nothing those who think that they are something. And not many of you, right, were intellectuals and not many of you were in positions of influence and not many of you are people of high status. But also notice what Paul says. Paul does not write that none of you were wise, were powerful, were noble, but just not many. There were a few exceptions to the rule, right? We, kn we know that's the case. We know that Crispus, for example, was the ruler of the synagogue in Corinth, and he became a Christian. We know that Paul's friends, uh, Aquila and Priscilla, ran a business that was so successful that their travels took them all over the Mediterranean world. We know that Paul's, uh, from Paul's letter to the Romans that Erastus was the city treasurer and that a man named Gaius was so wealthy that he could show hospitality to the entire church. I mean, there's plenty of exceptions to the rule. God doesn't show favoritism. God doesn't show favoritism for or against the wealthy and the wise, but on the whole, not many, not many were especially prominent. And I think it's important, I think it's important for us to ask why that is. I think the answer to that is really simple and incredibly disruptive. I mean, the gospel reverses all our expectations about what is truly valuable. And, a, and as a result of that, the, the gospel forms a community that is unlike any other social group and unlike any other religion in the world. The ladder of religious expression, by and large, it says right, that the, the good are in and the bad are out, right, which basically reduces human living to performance. Secular groups, you know, by contrast, uh, would say that accept the, the accepting are in and the intolerant are out. Which really means that we're all, <laughs> that we'll be accepting and open-minded as long as you accept that there's only one way to be open. One way to be open-minded. And the Gospels are altogether different because what the Gospels say is that the humble are in and the proud are out. The only way to enter into the kingdom of God is to recognize that, that, that you need a savior. And part of the reason why it's so hard for the wise and the powerful and the influential to enter into the kingdom is because they don't need that. They think that they already have everything required for a good, good life. But you see, if we really hear the message of the gospel, we begin to recognize that the only thing standing between us and Jesus is our pride. That's the only thing, standing in the way. That's, that's why the, guy, the gospel, it tells us that the humble are in, but the proud are out. So God's strategy, God's strategy for strengthening a struggling church, it's not what you would think. <laughs> it's weakness. God offers a, a weak message communicated through weak instruments and received by a weak audience. And he sets it up this way because uh, God's power is made perfect in weakness. 
God's power is made perfect in weakness. And that's why Paul says in verses 4 and 5 that, that my speech and my message were not, in, were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Despite the fact that this message would have seemed so pathetic or so foolish when it was proclaimed that the people in Corinth experienced, they experienced the supernatural power of God. I mean, there's no other way to explain it. The Spirit of God was unleashed in their midst and unleashed in their lives because of the simple, unadulterated message of Jesus and Him crucified. And there is power in that pro proclamation. And Paul says the same thing in the opening chapter in the letter to, to the Romans. He says that the gospel does not merely contain, does not merely reveal, but the gospel of Jesus is the power of God. It is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. It doesn't just contain power, it is power. And as crazy it might, as it might sound, and as inarticulately as it might be expressed, when it is announced, the gospel changes things. It changes things. When the simple, unadulterated message of the gospel is proclaimed, people discover their lives are changed. When they see, receive it for themselves, their relationships are no longer the same, right? Their whole way of being and acting in the world is transformed. They discover that the truth of the gospel, it stands out to them. They embrace it despite everything that they might have previously thought. And they find themselves falling in love with a God who has made himself known in Jesus and willingly to give their ultimate allegiance to him, no matter what the cost. And the only way to explain it is that the message of the gospel is accompanied by the, the supernatural work of God's spirit, leaving us with nothing to boast about. I mean, it's all about God's grace to us from beginning to end, from, from start to finish. God's power is showcased in weakness. And therefore, the more we humble ourselves, the more likely, the more likely we are to see it. God's power is made more perfect in weakness. And that's what happened in Corinth. And I have to tell you, it's what has happened to every one of us here who in humility and faith have embraced Christ as our Lord. The Apostle Paul, he focuses so much on the cross. And does that imply that, that, that when he was in Corinth, he didn't actually talk about the resurrection? Well, we know that he did, because if you scroll forward all the way to chapter 15, <laughs> This letter, this very letter, it's all about what he had told them previously about the resurrection. So why this focus? Why this emphasis on the cross? He did the same thing when he was in Galatia. He reminds the Galatians later that when he was among them, it was before their very eyes that Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. And what does that mean? Jesus wasn't crucified before their eyes, right? He wasn't they didn't see or witness before their eyes in Rome or in Corinth. Now he's crucified in Palestine, in Jerusalem. So what did Paul mean? 
Well, he meant that he proclaimed the crucifixion of Jesus so powerfully, so vividly, it was as if they had been there. It was as if they had seen it with their own eyes. It was as if they had seen the crown of thorns digging into his scalp. It was as if they watched the nails being driven through his arms and legs. It was as if they had seen the spear pierce his side. Yet even so, <laughs> what's the big deal? Right, crucifixions were a dime a dozen in the ancient world. Thousands of people were crucified. And what made this crucifixion different? What made the crucifixion different, right? And, and what made it different is that though thousands of people might have been crucified, only one man willingly let it happen when he had the power to stop it. What made the crucifixion of Jesus special is that it should have been you and me. It should have been you and me. And let that sink into your heart and into your imagination, that, that the cross of Christ, it gives us a cosmic picture of what every sin deserves. Every sin deserves to be put down. And, and Jesus was not a helpless victim crushed underneath the wheel of the Roman machine. No, Jesus was not a victim. He's a savior. Jesus willingly went to the cross because he substituted himself for you. He took your place. He was put down so that you might live, and he did it all by sheer grace. He didn't do it because you deserved it. No, in fact, we deserve the opposite. It's, it's all a gift from beginning to end, to start to finish. Therefore, we have nothing to boast about. The only thing that we can boast in is in Christ our Lord who was crucified on our behalf in our place. And he did it out of, he did, he did it all. He did it all out of love. And if you have him, if you are in Christ, then you have everything you now need. Because Christ becomes for you the wisdom of God. He's your righteousness, your sanctification, your redemption. In other words, he is your past and your present, and your future. Jesus is somebody who became a nobody in order to make a nobody like you and me a somebody. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that um, through it all, you would give us the grace to make sure that we know nothing, know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Father, may this truth, may it meet us in the places we are this morning and change us by it. With God alone be the glory. Amen. Will you please stand with us and we'll sing together.
my God, you are our salvation and our hope, and your steadfast loving kindness is our refuge. You save the humble but bring low the proud. Therefore, we join with your people on earth and all the company of heaven in the unending hymn. Having heard God's word, we're now invited to the table that God sets for his people. As Pastor Brian led us to think about the cross and the, the significance of the message of God's power in our weakness, we remind ourselves each Sunday before we come to the table, we remind ourselves of what it is we're participating in to prepare ourselves. And the thing I want us to, to remember or think about today is that the, the sacraments are what's called visible words. They are the gospel that we can see the gospel message that we can see. For we see the actions of God. It invites us to ask, like, what, who is God, and what is God like, and what does God do? And we see here at the table bread that's broken and wine that's poured out. We see that the gospel is that Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed. And what was the impact of that? What did that accomplish? It took people like you and me who were far off on our own, standing on our own records. It's Christ's broken body and shed blood brought us together and gave us a seat around the family meal of God. Gave you and me a, a seat at God's table. Not because of what we can bring or what we have done or promised to do, but because of the broken body and shed blood of Christ, we have a place at the table of God a new relationship with God, and a new relationship with one another. This is the visible word that helps us know the depth and the wonder of the gospel. If you know of your need before God, if you're seeking to boast not in yourself, but boast in the work of God for you, and you've placed your faith in Christ, then come and eat and drink. Let this table be a reminder and a nourishment of your faith. If you're not yet a follower of Christ or not sure what you think about this, we're, we're glad that you're here. And let this table be a witness and an invitation to think again about who God is and what God has done for you through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this table. This is something that we can see and hold and taste. 
that tells us who you are and how you've acted for us in Christ. We thank you for the good news that it's not the strong that have a place at the table, but the weak. It's not those who have a resume that's complete that have a seat in your family, but those who come with empty hands receiving your gift that are called your sons and daughters. And so we give you thanks for this work, and we pray that it would strengthen us, that we may walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on the night that he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took the bread, and he broke it, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Those who are taking communion, I invite you to come down the center aisle and receive the bread and the cup here at the front. I asked if you're able that you'd hold the elements until everyone's been served that we can eat and drink together. After you receive the elements at the front, you can go back on the sides. If you're not taking communion this morning, I still invite you to come forward. Just put your arm across your chest, and Pastor Brian or I can offer a prayer of blessing for you here at the table. Those who are serving can come forward. Let us also come now and receive the good gifts that God has given to us.
Christ's body was broken to make us whole. Let us eat in faith. Christ's blood was shed to cover all of our sins. Let us drink in faith. I invite you to stand in response to this table that we can uh, sing and pray as God's people. Lord Jesus Christ, you have made known to us the loving kindness of God, and that we are saved not because of our righteous works, but according to his mercy. With thankfulness, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. continue worshiping through a time of, of giving, a chance for us to respond uh, to the generosity of God. So uh, go ahead and invite uh, the greeters to come forward. There's a, a gray basket that you can put your communion cup in and then a silver offering plate uh, that if you'd like to give a gift that you can do so. Also, if you'd like to give to the work of the church, you'll see a note in your order that you can do that uh, through the church website or by text as well. Um, a couple other things just to mention. Uh, welcome again, especially if you are visiting uh, today. We're really Thankful that you can uh, be here and join us for worship. Uh, a couple notes that there is a, a black information pad under the, the chair in the center aisle. And if you're sitting there and, and ask that you pick that up and fill it out and pass it down, uh, this is a chance to, to see who you're worshiping with today. And also, if you're visiting, uh, I'd love for you to uh, share information, and uh, Pastor Brian and I can follow up and, and share some more about the church. Um, also, um, the, the I just realized I skipped the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> This is very scandalous. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, maybe we'll work that in later. So, um, um, but uh, so yeah. Anyway, welcome. And uh, just as a, a reminder that we have a time of coffee and bagels after the service. Um, they're in the hallway right behind you, uh, so you can help yourself there. And also, like I mentioned in the beginning, uh, the security guard here at Waters, Robert. Uh, uh, he's a great guy, and, is, and has brought food to us at times. And he's brought some some hot dogs and things for us today as well. So there'll be coffee and bagels and hot dogs back there. Uh, you can hang inside, or if you want to go out and enjoy the, the new playgrounds, you can. Um, but again, welcome, and let's continue uh, worshiping God through the giving of our gifts.
Will you please stand and join us for the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him, all the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. God's blessing. Now may the love of God the Father and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in peace.